Welcome to an in-depth exploration of biblical missionaries, written by Borge Schantz, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. The Missionary Nature of God See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Isaiah 55, verse 4, New International Version. Our world is a mess. And as humans, we are the big reason it is such a mess. And that's because we are sinners, fallen creatures whose nature at the core is evil. However much we like to think of ourselves as advancing, as improving, the history of the past century isn't too encouraging. And here we are, not even a quarter of the way into this century, and things don't look that bright from here either. If the past is precursor to the future, all we can expect, to quote a former British politician, is blood, toil, tears, and sweat. All is not lost, though. On the contrary, Jesus Christ has died for our sins. And through his death, we have the promise of salvation, of restoration, of all things being made new. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, the New King James Version. We have not been left alone, abandoned in the infinite expanse of a cold and apparently uncaring cosmos to fend for ourselves. We could never do it. The forces arrayed against us are so much greater than we are. That's why God had the plan of salvation in order to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God created man and woman. One of the perennial questions humans have asked is, where do I come from? In the first two chapters of the Bible, in fact, all through the Bible, we have been given the answer to what many would consider the most important question a person can ask. After all, only by knowing where we came from are we off to a good start in knowing who we are, why we exist, how we are to live, and where we are ultimately going? Let's listen to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 from the Amplified Bible, but focus especially on Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. I will let you know when we come to those verses. Here are two questions to answer. One, what great differences appear in the creation of humanity as opposed to everything else in the texts? Two, what is it about humans that stands out from other parts of this creation? Again, those two questions are, one, what great differences appear in the creation of humanity as opposed to everything else in the texts? And two, what is it about humans that stands out from other parts of this creation? 
Let's listen to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God prepared, formed, fashioned, and created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and an empty waste, and darkness was upon the face of the very great deep. The Spirit of God was moving, hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good suitable, pleasant, and he approved it. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. And God said, Let there be a firmament, the expanse of the sky, in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters below from the waters above. And God made the firmament, the expanse, and separated the waters which were under the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the firmament heavens, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be collected into one place of standing, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the accumulated waters he called seas. And God saw that this was good, fitting, admirable, and he approved it. And God said, Let the earth put forth tender vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees yielding fruit, whose seed is in itself, each according to its kind, upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and bearing fruit in which was their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, suitable, admirable, and he approved it. And there was evening and there was morning, a third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs and tokens of God's provident care, and to mark seasons, days, and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light, the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. He also made the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, fitting, pleasant, and he approved it. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly and swarm with living creatures. And let birds fly over the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves 
which the waters brought forth abundantly according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, suitable, admirable, and he approved it. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and wild beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the wild beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and domestic animals according to their kinds, and everything that creeps upon the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, fitting, pleasant, and he approved it. Okay, the next three verses will help you answer the two questions. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image after our likeness, and let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame beasts, and over all of the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image and likeness of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, using all its vast resources in the service of God and man and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves upon the earth. And now I will continue reading the last three verses of Genesis 1, and then Genesis chapter 2. And God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the land and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food and to all the animals on the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the ground to everything in which there is the breath of life i have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, suitable, pleasant, and he approved it completely. And there was evening, and there was morning, a sixth day. Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed, spoke good of, the seventh day, set it apart as his own, and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had created and done. 
This is the history of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But there went up a mist, fog, vapor, from the land, and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath or spirit of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, delight. And there he put the man whom he had formed, framed, constituted. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight or to be desired, good, suitable, pleasant for food. The tree of life also in the center of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of the difference between good and evil, and blessing and calamity. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four river heads. The first is named Pishon. It is the one flowing around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is of high quality, bdellium, pearl, and onyx stone are there. The second river is named Gihon. It is the one flowing around the whole land of Cush. The third river is named Hidikel, the Tigris. It is the one flowing east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and guard and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and blessing and calamity, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the Lord God said, It is not good, sufficient, satisfactory, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable, adapted, complimentary for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every wild beast and living creature of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. And Adam gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the air, and to every wild beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper, meat, suitable, adapted, complementary for him. 
And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, he, God, took one of his, that's Adam's ribs, or a part of his side, and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib, or part of his side, which the Lord God had taken from the man, he built up and made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then Adam said, This creature is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall become united, and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not embarrassed or ashamed in each other's presence. Okay, now that you've heard Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what answers do you have for the two questions? Compare your thoughts to these points. Number one, man and woman were created last of all the creatures. They had the whole visible creation in front of them to study and care for. Number two, God's mode for creating man and woman differed from that of the other creatures. Up to this point, the divine command had been, let there be light, firmament, water, fish and birds, animals, etc. Now the command was turned into consultation. Let us make man. The three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, consulted about it. Though these two chapters deal with the creation of the earth and the creatures on it, there is no question the main focus is on the creation of humanity itself. Number three, man and woman were created in God's image and likeness. Something not said about anything else that was created at that time. Though the text doesn't say what it meant to be made in the image and likeness of God, it must mean that humans in some way reflected the character of their creator. Because humans have a moral capacity not seen in other creatures, Butterflies might be beautiful, but they don't struggle with questions of right and wrong. To be made in the likeness and image of God surely means that to some degree, humans must have reflected his moral character. Number four, man and woman were to have dominion, to represent God on earth and rule over the rest of creation. This calling requires responsibility. Humans are introduced in the Bible in the first chapter, but not in isolation. We exist, but in relationship to God. What does this tell you about how central God should be to our lives and why we're not really complete without him. In the first part of Acts 17, verse 28, the Apostle Paul said, For in him we live and move and have our being. 
free will. Embedded in the creation account is the warning God gave about not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.9. So right from the start, we can see the moral element granted or given to humanity, something not seen in any of the other living creatures. As we have already heard, the capacity for moral judgment is one way that humans reveal the image and the likeness of God. Listen to Genesis 2, 15 to 17 in the Amplified Bible. What do these verses say about the reality of free will in humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? And the Lord God took the man and put him, Adam, in the Garden of Eden to tend and guard and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and blessing and calamity you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God could have created humans so that they automatically did his will. That is the way the other created things, such as light, sun, moon, and stars, were made. They obey God without any element of choice. They fulfill the will of God automatically through the natural laws that guide their actions. But the creation of man and woman was special. God created them for himself. God wanted them to make their own choices, to choose to worship him voluntarily without being forced to. Otherwise, they could not love him because love to be true love, must be freely given. Because of its divine origin, human free will is protected and respected by God. The Creator does not interfere with the deepest, persistent choices of men and women. Wrong choices have consequences. Sometimes, very terrible ones, too. But it is against the character of our sovereign Lord to force compliance or obedience. The principle of human free will has three important implications. For religion, an omnipotent God does not unilaterally direct individual will and choices. For ethics, Individuals will be held morally accountable for their actions. For science, the actions of body and brain are not wholly determined by cause and effect. Physical laws are involved in our actions, but free will means that we do have a choice regarding our actions, especially moral ones. What are some of the free moral choices you have to make in the next few hours, days, or weeks? How can you be sure that you are using this sacred gift in the right way? What would be the consequences of using this sacred gift in the wrong way? So, what will your choice be?
to fall. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, New International Version. Eating a little fruit was not a sinful act in itself. However, we have to consider the circumstances in which it was carried out. Adam and Eve were agents with a free will, made by God in his image. This included the freedom, but also the duty to comply with God's expressed will. They ate the fruit, not out of any stern necessity, but rather by choice. It was an act of Adam's and Eve's own free will in defiance of God's clear and specific instructions. Likewise, we must choose for ourselves whether or not to follow God and whether to cherish or to defy the word of God. God will not force anyone to believe his word he will never force us to obey him, and he can't force us to love him. God allows each of us to choose for ourselves which path we will follow. But in the end, we must be prepared to live with the consequences of our choices. By eating the fruit, Adam and Eve, in effect, told God that he was not the perfect ruler. His sovereignty was challenged. They proved disobedient, and as a result, they brought sin and death to the human race. Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, in the New International Version say, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Adam and Eve had to leave paradise. It was a necessary, yet merciful, consequence. The Lord would not allow rebellious humanity access to the tree of life. With loving care, he kept Adam and Eve away from the fruit that would make them immortal and thus perpetuate the terrible condition into which sin had brought to them. Imagine what eternal life would be like in a world filled with such pain and suffering and evil as ours is. Adam and Eve were driven out from the lovely garden to work the less friendly ground outside. In the context of our exploration, let's consider 1 John 2.16 from the Amplified Bible. Here is what that verse says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, craving for sensual gratification, and the lust of the eyes, greedy longings of the mind, and the pride of life, assurance in one's own resources or in the stability of earthly things, these do not come from the Father, but are from the world itself. How were the elements warned about in this text seen in the fall of Adam and Eve? 
In what ways do you have to deal with these same temptations in your life? God's initiative to save us. The Bible shows that after the fall of our first parents, it was God who came looking for them, not vice versa. On the contrary, the man and woman tried to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. What a powerful metaphor for so much of the fallen human race. They flee the one who comes looking for them, the only one who could save them. Adam and Eve did it in Eden, and unless surrendered to the wooing of the Holy Spirit, people are still doing the same thing today. Fortunately, God did not cast aside our first parents, nor does he cast us aside either. From the time that God first called out with these words, as Genesis 3.9, New King James Version, described God's query, Where are you? To Adam and Eve in Eden, until today, he is still calling us. In the matchless gift of his Son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace as real as the air which circulates around the globe. All who choose to breathe this life-giving atmosphere will live and grow up to the stature of men and women in Christ Jesus. So wrote Ellen G. White in her life-changing classic, Steps to Christ, on page 68. Of course, the greatest revelation of God's missionary activity can be seen in the incarnation and ministry of Jesus. Though Jesus came to this earth to do many things, to destroy Satan, to reveal the true character of the Father, to prove Satan's accusations wrong, to show that God's law can be kept, the crucial reason was to die on the cross in the place of humanity in order to save us from the ultimate result of sin, which is eternal death. What do each of these texts teach us about the death of Jesus? John 3:14 and 15. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert on a pole, so must, so it is necessary that, the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, in order that everyone who believes in him, who cleaves to him, trusts him, and relies on him, may not perish, but have eternal life and actually live forever. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs, sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses, and carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet we, ignorantly, considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, as if with leprosy. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The chastisement needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. All we like sheep 
have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has made to light upon him the guilt and iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made Christ virtually to be sin who knew no sin, so that in and through him we might become endued with, viewed as being in, and examples of the righteousness of God, what we ought to be, approved and acceptable and in right relationship with him by his goodness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, the New King James Version. That is what it took in order for us to be made the righteousness of God in him. This idea has been called the Great Exchange. Jesus taking on our sins and suffering as a sinner so that we, those sinners, can be counted as righteous before God, as Jesus himself. Metaphors of Mission Mission is God's initiative to save lost humanity. God's saving mission is motivated by his love for each one of us. There is no deeper reason for it. God sent Christ on a mission to bring salvation for the whole world. John's Gospel alone contains more than 40 declarations of the cosmic dimension of Jesus' mission. For example, John 3.17 For God did not send the Son into the world in order to judge, to reject, to condemn, to pass sentence on the world but that the world might find salvation and be made safe and sound through him. John 12, 47. If anyone hears my teachings and fails to observe them, does not keep them, but disregards them, it is not I who judges him, for I have not come to judge and to condemn and to pass sentence, and to inflict penalty on the world, but to save the world. As Christ was sent by the Father to save the world, he in turn sends his disciples with the words, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. John twenty twenty one New International Version Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14, mention two metaphors used for mission in these texts. What are they? And what do they stand for? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, its strength, its quality, how can its saltness be restored? It is not good for anything any longer but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The metaphors of salt and light express core functions of Christian influence on humanity. While salt operates internally, Joining the mass with which it comes in contact, light operates externally, illuminating all that it reaches. 
The term earth in the salt metaphor refers to men and women with whom Christians are expected to mix, while the term light of the world refers to a world of people in darkness that needs illumination. The children of Israel were encouraged to live up to the moral principles and health rules that God had given them. They were to be a light, illuminating and attracting. You are a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6, New International Version. Their collective existence in a state of health, prosperity, and loyalty to God's Sabbath and other commandments would proclaim to the surrounding nations God's mighty acts of creation and redemption. The nations, observing their prosperity, would approach them and learn to be taught of the Lord. That was the idea, anyway. When Christ came, he also talked about salt, another way to witness. By their influence in the world, Christians are to curb the world's corruption. Unbelievers are often kept from evil deeds because of a moral consciousness traceable to Christian influence. Christians not only have a good influence on the corrupted world by virtue of their presence in it, they also mingle with people in order to share the Christian message of salvation. Light or salt, how good a witness are you to the surrounding world? Is the light dimming? Is the salt losing its punch? If so, how can you personally experience revival and reformation? Let's continue exploring. We have dealt with some aspects of the missionary nature of God. Mission is an enterprise of the triune God. Mission is predominantly related to Jesus Christ, whose incarnation is central to Christian faith and mission. By his life and death, Jesus has paved the way for the salvation of all the human race. We, as his followers, his missionaries, have to let people know the good news of just what Jesus has done for them. The Church of Christ on earth was organized for missionary purposes, and the Lord desires to see the entire church devising ways and means whereby high and low, rich and poor, may hear the message of truth. Not all are called to personal labor in foreign fields, but all can do something by their prayers and their gifts to aid the missionary work. Those heartfelt words were written by Ellen G. White in her book Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 29. Let's consider a few life application questions. Origins why do origins matter? How does a proper understanding of your origins help you to understand who you really are and what the purpose of your existence really is? Perhaps the following quote might help you to better understand the existence of free will, love, and evil in our world. If God wants to create loving creatures in imitation of his perfect love, God has to create free beings who can cause suffering and evil in the world by their choices. 
The dynamics of love and freedom require that God allow us the latitude to grow in love through our human freedom. God's only alternative to allowing free beings to choose unloving acts is to completely refrain from creating loving creatures. The author of those words is Robert J. Spitzer, quoted from his book entitled, New Proofs for the Existence of God, Contributions of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy, page 233, Kindle edition, Erdman's Publishing Company, 2010. The death of Jesus was a single act that occurred in a small nation amid the vast Roman Empire almost 2,000 years ago. Yet, this act is of eternal significance for every human being. What responsibility rests on you? Because you know about this act and what it means to tell those who don't know about it. How else will they learn of it if those who know about it don't tell them? ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.